It said in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The concept behind that is God, or Christ, is the source of life. In him is life. He's the source of life. He's the author of life. He is the sustainer of life. Um, and were it not for him, life would not exist. And then it brings in this concept of the light and the darkness. And of course, throughout the Bible, that's a common metaphor of truth versus error, you know, of good versus evil, of God versus Satan. God is a God of light. He's a God that, that, that I've seen. Well, in the Old Testament, when you see God in the Shekinah glory, what do you see? Light, blazing light. And that's the common metaphor that's used here. Um, and then it talks in verse 6, there's a man sent from God whose name was John. This came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Now, here's one of the first, Christ is, in fact, it's interesting as you go through here, count up the different names for Christ. He's the Word, right? He's called Word. Um, he's called Light now. Light. To bear witness of the light that all through him might believe he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. What was John the, or John the Baptist's ministry? Prepare the way. The light is coming. The Son of Man is coming. The Savior is coming. Prepare the way. He wasn't the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light that was coming. The light that brings the truth of the gospel, the truth of God. And, and, and that's something to understand about God. God is truth. Remember, God can't lie? Now, Satan, he can't tell the truth. God can't lie. God is truth. God is light. And that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Christ is the true light, the light of God, the, the truthfulness that brings personal light to everyone in the world. And light here can be understanding, truth, salvation. I think all those concepts are wrapped up into that. To see the truth. And, God, and Christ is one who brings light. And then the sad thing, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world did not know him. Why didn't the world know him? Sin. Sin. Now, this is something very important. If you all aren't Calvinists, you're going to be by the time this class is over, or you flunk. No, I'm kidding. All right. Because that's the only way to understand these next few verses. The only way you're going to figure them out is you might as well just get over with it. The idea that God is sovereign in salvation. All right. The light comes into the world, and what do men see? They don't see anything. Why don't they see anything? They're in the dark. They can't see. They can't understand. So all the light is here. Man in his unredeemed, unregenerate state wouldn't know it if it's standing right next to him. Because it's not within his capability to comprehend the light. Now that does not re remove his responsibility or culpability. That's one thing you got to understand. Just because man does not see it doesn't mean that he's not responsible for it. But in his depraved state, man cannot see the light. The light was here. 
The world was made by him. Christ came into the world and he created the world and the world had no idea who this was. To them, he was just another Jewish guy walking around. How did the Pharisees see him? As a thorn in their side. As a pain. But they didn't see him as the son of God. They certainly didn't see him as the creator of the universe. They just saw him as another person. An irritating one at that. And not only that, he came into his own and they didn't receive him. He came into the world that he created, it didn't recognize him. He came into his own and his own there could be um, the Jews. You know, he came into his own people, they didn't recognize him. You know, here, here's the Pharisees and, and all these. They're looking for the Messiah, looking for the Messiah, looking for the Messiah. The Messiah shows up and they're still looking for the Messiah. They don't see him. Because he, would, he did not fit their mold of what they thought Messiah should be. And because of their darkness and their rebellion and their hardness of heart, they couldn't understand. If, they, if even they wanted to, they couldn't understand. They still don't. They still don't. And can it fairly be argued that the rulers, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, they weren't looking for the Messiah? They were. The Sadducees weren't, but the Pharisees were looking. And they were looking for their Messiah. But their Messiah was the one who was going to be this, you know, great military leader and rally the Jews and drive the Romans out and, you know, reestablish the kingdom. And, you know, when Jesus comes along talking about repentance and forgiveness and love and the meekness will inherit the earth, that's the last thing in their mind they wanted to deal with. Right, but I thought the zealots were the ones who were looking for the, this great military leader. They were, the but the Pharisees were too. The Pharisees weren't militant about it. The zealots were. They were. The zealots said, you know, we'll go kill a few Romans and try to get this thing going. The Pharisees weren't there. And the Sadducees, you know, they had a good gig going with the temple there. You know, they didn't really want to upset the apple cart. They were fine with the Romans being in charge because that meant that they were safe. So they weren't really looking for the Messiah. So it's the bottom line, Alan, and they simply rejected it. I mean, all those clues in the Old Testament pointing toward, they just simply rejected that it couldn't be him. They just didn't right. From the human perspective, this is the only way you're going to figure this out. You've got to be a schizo on this. From the human perspective, they, of their own will, rejected the Messiah because he was not what they wanted the Messiah to be. From the divine perspective, they rejected the Messiah because they wouldn't have been able to recognize him if they wanted to because they are depraved. And they can't see spiritual truth. And they can't understand who it is. All right? But here's the bridge. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. So it says, now wait a minute. He came on his own and they didn't receive him. But as many as did receive him, he gave them the right. So how, how does that work out? How did they receive him? Well, I'll read verse 13. The ones who received him who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how did these receive him? How were they born? 
How? How? By the will of God. It was not their will, right? It's not the will of the flesh. It's not of blood or the will of the flesh or of the will of man. None of those work. It was God's will that gave them the ability to be born again, which is intimately linked with their belief. Now, you're going to see this linkage show up again in chapter 6. All right? And John does a masterful, masterful, um, just he's masterful about linking these two concepts together. On one hand, you've got the you've got the human perspective. As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. That's from the human perspective. But now, how did that person receive him? Well, from the divine perspective, they were born again, not of their own will, but the will of God. So the will of God regenerated them. At which point, they were able to see and understand and believe. And throughout the Gospel of John, again and again, he says, it is God's grace that enables you to see spiritual truth. And we don't like that. As human beings, we just don't like that. We want to think that somehow we, in our, in our own abilities, in our own intellectual pursuit, or our own, our own strength, we can decide for ourselves. And the Bible says, no, you can't. He came on his own. They didn't receive him. Who could receive him? The ones that were born again, not of their own will, but the will of God. And by the way, this metaphor of born again is picked up in chapter 3, the great born again chapter. Now let me ask a question. How many of you decided when you were going to be born? What, God, what Christ is telling Nicodemus is being born again is not a work of you. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings salvation to those whom He chooses when He chooses. And it's not them. Nicodemus says, how can a man enter his second time in his mother's womb and be born? Christ says, you've missed it. You missed the point. You don't, you don't decide when you were born. You did not decide, here's something, you did not decide when you were going to be born again. That was not your choice. It just happened. And the first thing you did as a newborn child of God is cry out in faith to God for salvation. But your birth preceded your faith. Regeneration precedes faith. You're born again, then you believe. You don't believe, and then you're born again. Both are inter, 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 integrally linked together. And the only way to really understand this verse, I don't know how else to comprehend this verse, or John 6, or John 3, if you don't let God be God and be sovereign in salvation and just go with it. Because I don't know how else you're going to understand. What, well, how else can you interpret it who are born again, not of the will of the flesh or the will of man or of blood, but of God? How else do you, how else do you interpret that? Well, I decided I was going to be saved today. No, you didn't. 
God decided you'd be saved today. And the first thing you did when you were born again is you repent, you believe, you place your faith in Christ. But you couldn't do that if you weren't born again. You can't. Does that make any sense? I don't know how else to interpret this. I don't know how to interpret it. And the Word became flesh. Dwelled among us. Eternity stepped into time. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We looked at Him and observed Him and seen Him. Now, the only begotten here, that's a big monogenes. People have trouble with that, saying, well, see, that, that means Christ proceeded from the Father. No, it could also mean one and only. Yes, sir? Verse 2, it says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power. As many as received him, those who received him, First of all, how do you receive him? What comes before that? Regeneration. All right, so this is called the order salutis, ordo salutis. When I was growing up, I was taught, if you believe, then you're saved. The Bible says, no, you're saved, then you believe. Because you can't believe, you're dead. You're dead in sin. You're insensitive to the truth of God. You wouldn't know God. You can't know God. It's not within your ability to know God. God's got to do a work in your heart. He's got to bring salvation so the light goes on and then all of a sudden you see and comprehend and you can understand for the first time. And you immediately respond in faith. And what he's saying there is those who have responded in faith, he's picking up the last piece of it. You know, Basically, the, the activity of verse 13 precedes the activity of 14, uh, 12. Okay? So you're born again of God. You have eternal life. And then what do you do? You believe Him. And those who believe Him, He gives them the right, the power to become His sons even those who believe on his name. But how can you believe on his name? The only way you can believe on Jesus' name is that you are regenerated in the first place. We'll sort it all out. It'll, it'll get clearer, hopefully. This is deep theology here we're getting into, guys. This is not, this is not the stuff you're going to get in the 20,000-foot commentary type stuff. You've got to think about this a little bit. All right? But I'm trying to help you understand. You've got to be able to put all the verses together in the Bible. You've got to make them all fit. You know? And people say, well, I have it within my own ability to be saved. How do you interpret then this verse? Which says, no, you weren't. You were not born by your will. You are born by God. He's the one who did it. Not the will of man, which would include you. God did it. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. But where God regenerates, then we believe. And here's the thing. 
Where does our faith come from? Where does your faith come from to believe? You? Uh, of course. Not from you. It comes from God. God gives you the... Why do you believe... You know, we all here believe in heaven, right? Anybody been there? Have you had a have have you had an audible personal conversation with Christ? Have you seen God? Why do you believe all those things? See, they have places for people who believe things they haven't seen, right? Yeah. Ephesians 2 7. Yeah, it's. Yeah. And, and the whole thing there is that the faith that I have right now, the faith that I have to believe in God, is not my faith, which is a comforting thing. Because if it was my faith, what kind of faith would that be? Conditional. Well, it'd be conditional, it'd be weak, and it'd be failing, right? But God doesn't give me a faith that fails, He gives me a faith that doesn't fail because it's not. Me, it's Him. He enables me to believe. He enables me to trust. He enables me to have this. It's all of God. He gets all the credit. It's not you. Is our faith constant, or is it, does God strengthen our faith in times of trouble? I think He does. You know. So we have lesser faith when things times are good. It may be evident. Yeah, it's evident. You know, God does not get. Somebody said God does not give you martyr faith until you need to have it. You know, but there's a sense in which our faith can be strengthened, right? As we just, what is faith? Just believe in God, right? It's like a muscle. Yeah, you believe God. It's like a muscle. You got to exercise. You got to believe God. Um, there are those people that believe God, and those people that believe God because they've been through it. Yeah, and they know that that God's been faithful there to carry them through. The trials and and they have a deeper faith, um, but the faith that we have, the 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 or, or origin of that faith is not us. It's God. God grants us the faith. It's a gift of His, and we can strengthen it and develop it. But it's His faith. Yeah. You know, um, we get the voice of the martyrs at home, mm -hmm. and, and this conversation really ties in with that. Same faith that we have, God gives people overseas that you know deal with persecution. Faith as well, and the faith that they have, I can read about them and say, man, that faith, their faith is like so much stronger. But it's it's not unlike the faith that God has given me. But it is the grace faith that they need for their circumstances mm -hmm. that allows them to hold on in the face of persecution even unto death. Whereas I don't have those circumstances in you know, my life. So I looked at it and I said, you know, it's purely from God. I can't imagine it being from any other source to allow them to deal with what they deal with and allow me to deal with what I deal with. And, and the wonderful thing for us as believers is our faith is an unfailing faith because it's not our faith. Right. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle, you don't have doubts, and but ultimately... It will not fail. Because it's not us. If it was my faith, it would fail. You know, and, and that's a comforting thing to understand. That God is the one who grants us that faith to believe. And then it says here, um, 
John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. How was he before me? Well, he was eternal. And John bore witness of Christ, saying, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given to Moses. This is contrasting law and grace. We need to understand that, that they're not... I, th I think in our day and age, we have a very warped view of the law. Is the law a good thing? Yeah, it is. It's a good thing. But it's not the end thing, is it? What was the law? What was the purpose of the law? To teach us. To train us. For Christ. Yeah. But then, when we come to the knowledge, to Christ who is the culmination, the end of the law, we come to Christ who is grace and truth. It's not that the law is bad, but the law served its purpose. purpose. It's just like kids, right? When you have little kids, there's a lot of rules, isn't there? But hopefully as they grow up, at some point those rules go away totally because they don't need them anymore. Because it's been internalized. That was the purpose of the law. It was our schoolmaster, Paul uses, our pedagogos, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But now that we're brought to Christ and we're grown up and we understand and we see it, it's not that the... The law is still there, but it's not something that, that that is external. It's something internal. Why do we want to do the right things? Not because there's some rule that says thou shalt not, but because we love God so much we want to honor Him that we don't want to do those things. The law comes inside us. It's fulfilled its purpose. Understand, you know, and this is the big thing, You know, and I, I remember just praying today, I think it was, I said, Lord, you know, it's taken me 48 years to figure this out. But Christianity is not rules. It's a relationship. It isn't rules. And it isn't rights. And it isn't regulations. You know, I'm in Europe in these massively beautiful cathedral churches and, and people are genuflecting and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's all ritual over there. It's all in the external trappings. They've got little candles lit for people in purgatory. You pay a couple euros and light a candle and knock some years off of somebody's purgatory sentence, depending on how many churches you can hit. It's all... That's. I, I just looked at it and I was so saddened by it. It's not that at all. That, is that what God is? Rules? Regulations? No, it's a relationship. That's what it's all about. And that's what Christ came to show us. It's relationship. It's not rules. It's not regulations. It's not what you do. It's what you are and the relationship you have with God. And he brought us that. In verse 18, it says, No one seen God at any time. The only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father. He's declared him. You want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. In fact, later on, Christ says that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? Look at me. And why is that? Does anybody is are we going to see God the Father in eternity? No, he's spirit, right? You don't see spirit. Now we'll see maybe a blazing, blinding, brilliant glory, but we're not going to see the Father. Who are we going to see? Christ. Christ. 
You want to know what the character of God is? Well, look at Christ. I'll show you what the character of Christ is. Or what God, character of God is. We've not seen God, but we've seen His Son. And His Son lets us understand what He is like. In fact, Colossians says He is the icon, the stamp, the impression of God. Now this is the testimony of John. By the way, these first 18 verses, that's really the, the basis of Christology. That's the doctrine of Christology of Christ. Of his origin. And if you get that down, you've got a good grasp on who is Jesus. And that's why, this is very important here. I'll digress, I'm sorry. When somebody comes to your door and they knock, and they want to tell you about Jesus, the thing to ask them is, which Jesus are you talking about? Jesus who? You talk to the Jehovah Witnesses, their Jesus is a created being who is probably the greatest created being of all created beings, but nevertheless he's not Jehovah. He's not God. And as a created being, he's certainly not eternal. He's By definition, you can't be eternal if you're created, right? He's not self-existent, by definition. He's not omniscient, by definition, right? Because there's a time when he did not exist. So their Jesus is not this Jesus. Then you might talk to the Mormon and their Jesus is the spirit offspring of Elohim with one of his many celestial wives. The firstborn of Elohim, the firstborn being that he and he procreated with his one of his wives out there, but certainly not divine. By the way, Christ is his brother, half-brother, and we're all related to Christ. We're all his half-brothers. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Then you talk to the New Age boys, and their Jesus is anything you want them to be. You know, Maitreya, you know, the, the Divine One, whatever it is. <coughs> yes, Jesus God? Yes, the New Age is Jesus God? Absolutely, but so am I. In fact, one guy says, I saw somebody drinking milk, and it hit me that God is pouring God into God. Go figure that one out. And it comes back to Jesus who. You get the wrong Jesus, you're sunk. Don't get the wrong Jesus. The, the Jesus that you want is the Jesus revealed in the Word of God. And how can you understand who that Jesus is? You've got to have the Holy Spirit. Or you're sunk. Or you're one of those guys, he came on his own and they didn't see him. I, say, I think it's kind of a sad note because I think back in growing up, as a Catholic in all those early years. I mean, those first five verses in the beginning was the word, that's part of the Mass every Sunday. Mm -hmm. I remember those, I don't know if it's part of the Apostles' Creed or what it was, but I mean, whoever knew <laughs> what, what significance it had. But every week we saw those in the beginning mm -hmm. was the word, the word was with God. The, the, the problem with Catholicism, it's got the right Jesus, but it's got the wrong work. Yeah. He's God, but what he did is not what the Bible says he did in their system. He gives you a kickstart, but it's up to you to finish the job of salvation. But the, but the important thing here to understand is just because somebody comes up, and by the way, the word faith guys on TV, their Jesus is a different Jesus. All right? You always got to be careful. When somebody says, I love Jesus, which, which Jesus do you love? So who is it 
what group is it that has Jesus um, where it's, you know, um, God is the Father in the Old Testament, God is Jesus in the New Testament, yeah. and now God's Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a, a yeah, that's a, um, a heresy called Sabellianism, yeah. or, mon let's see, modalistic monarchianism, that's the word for the night. Or modalism. Modalism and narcanism. And what they do is they say, well, you have one God in the Old Testament, he's seen as the Father. In the New Testament, he's seen as Jesus. And in the church, he's seen as the Holy Spirit. The problem is, what do you do when you have Jesus baptized, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove? All right. That's called modalism. Yeah. And what they do is they want to make one person sort of looks three, like you used to be a son, then your father, and then your grandfather, but you're the same person. Um, that's a heresy. That's modalism. That's a denial of the Trinity. Right. I, I understand that. I was just wondering what mm -hmm. group today holds that thought. Is there a particular group out there? Not, I, not that I know of. Not an official religious group. There might be some that believe that, but not an official religion that holds that that I know of offhand. Um, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So here's John doing his thing. And what's John preaching? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, preparing the way of the Messiah. So they send these guys down and say, well, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but said, I'm not the Christ. So the first thing he said, well, who are you? He said, well, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Why did they say that? Because it was the forerunner according to the prophecies of, of Malachi. Malachi said, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before that. And what did John tell him? I'm not. So that answers that issue right there. He's not Elijah. And then he said, well, are you the prophet? Who's the prophet? Well, they had this concept that there was going to be a super prophet that was going to rise prior to the coming of the Messiah and prepare the way. Are you that prophet? And he said, well, no, I'm not him either. Well, they said, well, who are you? we got to, we got to report back to the guys who sent us. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. What's that a quote from? Isaiah, I think it is. As the prophet Isaiah said. So the Pharisees had it wrong the forerunner was not Isaiah, was not Elijah, was not the prophet. The forerunner mm. was the Isaiah, the prophet spoken of in Isaiah. Well, that's that's a good paper topic if you're taking it as a as a college level. Um, people have a lot of confusion on that. Okay? Some interpret Malachi as meaning Elijah will really come, so they make one of the two witnesses Elijah to, to fulfill that. Others say, no, it's someone coming in the power and spirit of Elijah. Okay? In any case, at the first advent, the first coming of Christ, he did not come to set up the kingdom, did he? Well, the answer to that is, yo. He did. Yes and no. Yes in the sense that the offer to Israel was a bona fide valid offer. Right? 
What would have happened had Israel as a nation repented? Yeah, the kingdom would have come out. But see, God, God knew, God knew that that wasn't going to be the way. God knew that. That was, and that was not Plan B of God. That was Plan A of God. Understand, God does not have contingent plans, right? I mean, I plan on going home this way, but if I can't, I'll do that. If I can't do that, I'll do that. God doesn't have that. There's only one plan with God. He doesn't have to worry about contingencies. All right. He knew that Israel would reject because he ordained Israel would reject because he did not do anything to prevent them from rejecting. And since he didn't prevent them from rejecting, what would they naturally do? Reject. All right. So it was all part of the plan. But it was a bona fide offer. It was a valid offer to Israel. And what is and so to say that Elijah was going to come, Elijah comes not here but at the second advent, the spirit and power of Elijah. And I believe it's the spirit and power. I don't think it's really him. But that's the second advent. So John is really accurate in saying, no, I'm not the one because in the plan of God, this was not the time of the kingdom to start. Said, All right. Said John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah too. He but he's not the Elijah. Right, right, right. See? Jesus said he was, though. He came in the spirit and power, but he's not the Elijah prior to the second advent. Right. And that's what he's saying here. I'm not Elijah. You know, I'm not that one that you that that's coming here prior to. So I think he said the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay, if... No, he said that John was Elijah. But in Matthew... If you, he said if you had believed he would have been, I think it's something like that. And we're going to get to that. If you, I think it's something along the line, if you had believed he would have been, but since you didn't believe he's not, we're going to get to that. That's coming up. You remember that passage? I forget where it is here. It's, it's coming up because they did ask him that. I remember that. You're right. Um, but John is saying, I'm not the Elijah that's, that's in view in Malachi. I'm not that one. But if you were to ask, um, what's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? Elijah. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, that guy did miracles for breakfast. You know, I mean, the guy was, was amazing. And... Um, yeah, so if you were going to think of the greatest prophet, probably in the Old Testament, the most powerful one you think of is Elijah. And I think Jesus, or, or what's equating there, is the, the power that John had was equivalent to the power that Elijah had. He wasn't Elijah, but he certainly had that effect. In fact, John was the greatest, it's argued that John really was the greatest Old Testament prophet. Okay. No, Isaiah was 700 B.C., thereabouts, Malachi was 300 years later, 400s. So Isaiah spoke first of the suffering servant prophecy, Malachi expanded it. Yeah, Malachi was much later. And, they, and then, now those 24 who were sent from the Pharisees, they asked him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now we've got to talk about baptism. What is baptism? Yeah, I was taught you got to dunk. And I, in fact, I was told if you weren't dunked, you weren't baptized. 
That's the only valid. And it was all focused on under the water, all that kind of stuff. What's this baptism? And by the way, I was told that the baptism signified the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Right? Anybody hear that? Is that what it means? Yes, you're carrying identity with. So you've been in other classes. You know. But, you know, people say, well, John was baptizing them to portray the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Folks, John had no concept of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, nobody did. All right? The only person who had any concept of that at this point was Christ. The rest of it had... If they were doing that picture, they had no idea what they were doing. What was baptism? Baptism was a common, somewhat common, ritual in those days. And, was, and, and, and when you were to join a group like the Essene community down by the Dead Sea, as part of your, part of your initiation into that, that community, the last thing that would happen is you'd be baptized. They had a baptistry down in the Essene community. When you were baptized, then you were publicly making a declaration of identification and solidarity with that community. And you were an official part of that community. Until then, you were not an official part of the community. And all John did was pick up this concept to show when someone was baptized under John, they were saying, I am identifying myself with, in solidarity with the message of what John is preaching. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm identifying with it. I'm agreeing with that. And why was Christ baptized? He identified his ministry, right? As not distinct from John, but as what? The fulfillment of what John's ministry was all about. That's what it was all about. While Christ was portraying his death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, Romans 6, there's no water in Romans 6. It talks about the baptism. There's no water there. That's identification. I'm identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not talking about water baptism. It really isn't. We've made this big thing out of water baptism. All baptism is is a public affirmation of identification with a community. And in John's case, the people that were baptized were identifying themselves with his message and affirming the validity and the truthfulness of it. And publicly making a proclamation, I am with him in this. Tom, uh, had uh, John, the gospel writer, been baptized prior to being called by Jesus? Maybe. Possibly. I'm not sure. Some were. Um, I don't. I don't know offhand if he was or not. But those who were baptized under John were affirming the truthfulness of his message and identifying themselves with that. And even in the early church, um, you were not considered part of the church until you were baptized. You were making a public affirmation of solidarity with the church. That was a big thing. Baptism was a big thing because it was a public proclamation. It doesn't make you saved, but it's a public proclamation. So today, you know, is, is water baptism a good thing? Sure it is. If I was the pastor of a church, how would I do it? Immersion. Good picture. 
I have no problem with that. But don't put the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ imagery in there. That's not what baptism portrays. Because if not, you have to say, well, then what did John's baptism portray? Because he wasn't baptizing him for salvation. And why was Christ baptized then? That doesn't make any sense. He didn't. Well, Christ's baptism was an affirmation of John's ministry. And when Christ was baptized and the Spirit descended, that was an affirmation from God of Christ's ministry that he's going to pick up now. It was an affirmation of that. Someone gets baptized today getting baptized into a church or the church? It's an external today. Today your baptism into the church, the body of Christ, occurs at the moment of salvation. You're baptized by the Spirit. You're placed into the body of Christ. Water baptism signifies your public proclamation of identification with the message of the gospel. And I think it's valid for today, yes. So, and the imagery, the, 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 the importance of baptism is not the mode. That's where we get all balled up. We argue about the mode. Are you sprinkled? Are you shot with a hose? Do they have water poured on you? Are you dunked? What is it? And we argue about the mode. That's not the importance of it. The importance of it is what is it signifying? It's signifying in whatever shape it takes. It's signifying I'm making an identification with this church. I'm, I'm publicly affirming that I agree with and I'm identifying myself with this message, the gospel, the, the good news. That's all. That's all. Stuff people argue about. That's not important. Just do it. The importance is the significance of what's the significance of communion. It's remembrance, right? Take this in remembrance of me. What's critical about communion? Is it the elements? Is it the way in which the elements are 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 served? No. The, 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 the significance of communion is the remembrance of Christ's broken body. Now, I'll tell you what, it's easier to see that if you pass a loaf of bread around and break a hunk off than it is if you take a cracker out of a plate. But we change that all around. We don't think anything of that. That's okay. It's okay to do that. But then we want to fight and argue over whether you're dunked or sprinkled. The sig and we, we, we lose the significance of what it is that's being pictured. Baptism is a picture of identification with Christ. That's, what it, that's the significance of it. How it's done is not the, is important. You know, I'm saying that as an ex-Baptist. It's... It's not as important as what you're signifying. I'm making an identification with Christ. I want to tell everybody who's watching me being put under this water, I am publicly affirming that I'm a believer. I'm identifying with Christ and his message, and I want everybody to know that. And that's what it's all about. And that's what John's baptism was about. They were identifying with his message.
agreeing to repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and are identifying with that. And um, he says, John answered him, saying, verse 26, I baptize with water. There stands ones among you who do not know. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. What, what, what's the idea of a sandal strap not worthy to lose? Well, the lowliest servant in the household, his job was to wait at the door and take your shoes off. John says, I'm not even worthy to lose his sandal. He's greater than me. I don't even have the right to take his shoes off. Now, if you want to understand more about John's baptism, you got to go to the other Gospels. If we did that, we'd just talk about that, nothing else in the rest of the class. But the whole point there is that John baptized to get people ready for the kingdom. And what is it? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is being offered. And when Jesus Christ preached, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. What's the gospel of the kingdom? No. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the gospel of the kingdom? There's three gospels in the New Testament. You know that. Yeah, that... Yeah. The everlasting gospel preached in Rome and Revelation is Christ is king, the king's coming, you better get ready. The kingdom, gospel of the kingdom of heaven is good news, the Messiah is here, get ready. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, Christ died for your sins, you can be born again. We think of that one all the time as the gospel. But really all gospel is is good news. What was John and Jesus preaching in their early ministry? The kingdom of heaven is hand, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, Jesus and John were preaching the same gospel. Yeah, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm here. Repent. And what did the people do? Rejected him. They rejected him. And when the rejection was complete, the offer of the kingdom was withdrawn. And then Christ started preaching, you know, for example, in Matthew, you see the offer of the kingdom all the way through chapter 12. And finally in chapter 12, what do the Pharisees do? Well, you're, you're doing things by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's how you're getting your power. And, and that's sort of like God said, okay, that's it. And, and, and this is something to understand. God offers, God makes a bona fide offer of salvation to the unbeliever, but that offer is not always on the table. There comes a day when that offer is withdrawn. When that offer is withdrawn, you're done for. Christ offered the kingdom of heaven to Israel, and what did they say? No, 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 no. And finally they accused him of being in league with the devil. And the offer was withdrawn. Is the offer going to be extended again someday? Yep. And next time they're going to believe. But they didn't believe the first time. He said, repent. Then 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One of the key verses in 
John. Now we have another... In fact, you might want to just start writing down your column the names of Jesus. Here's another one, Lamb of God. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should reveal to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John is basically saying, I know this is Christ because why? The Spirit of God, the dove, descended and stayed on him. This is he of whom I was pointing people to. This is him. This is the Messiah. I'm just the forerunner. I'm just the announcer. I'm just the trumpeter. Well, he dragged him out of there, but... <laughs> then verse 35, again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speaking, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, Who do you seek? What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. That was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. One of the two was Andrew. So Andrew was a disciple of John. Okay. Now, you've got to understand the imagery here. In those days, the way you learned, you didn't go to the university. All right, You didn't go somewhere and, you know, Rather, what you did is you found a teacher and you walked around with that teacher. You just you just shadowed him. So what's happening here? What's the imagery here? You've got two disciples of John who are following John. Who do they now follow? Christ. They go towards Christ. And one of them was Andrew. He first found his own brother Simon said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ, and brought him to Jesus. So Andrew brings Peter... Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, or John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So Peter becomes a disciple. So here you see a couple of the, the first two disciples. Then the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. By the way, where was Jesus baptized? Down near where? Judea. Yeah, down in the Judean area. So he's in the ne next couple of days, he's making his way up to Galilee again. And he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was like the Hickville town of the day. All right. It's like, hey, we got the next great leader out of West Virginia. Oh, come on. Can anything come out of good like that? You know, hillbillies down there. So now you got Philip and Nathaniel. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Wow. Here's a man of integrity. And Nathaniel said, How do you know me? Jesus said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Now there's an indication here that's not that Jesus was walking by and saw this guy under the fig tree. The hint here is of what? He knew him. Why did how did he know him? He's God, he knows everything. He's seen him. Because what Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Now, why did he respond to that? He, he didn't respond to that because Jesus happened to see him sitting under a fig tree as he walked by. But he, he said that because he knew this was someone who saw him without seeing him. There's a hint here that it's beyond just Jesus seeing him under a tree. Jesus said to him, Because I say to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So you have the calling of the first four disciples here. By the way, there are several callings of the disciples. They're called on multiple occasions. This is the first calling. Okay? Any, we're going to stop here. Got through chapter 1. He he didn't give them up. That, that that's an important question. Did Jesus give up omniscience? Okay. Well, can you give up an attribute? No. No, because that, an attribute is intrinsic to what you are, right? So Christ could not give up omniscience. He could not give up self existence Christ could not say, "Well, I'm not going to be self-existent anymore." All right, he couldn't do that. It's not with you can't deny what you are. What Christ did do in the kenosis is he gave up the um, what people say the independent use of those. Although he knew everything, he limited his knowledge to only that which the Father had revealed. He could do that. We can't. It wasn't that he was not omniscient, or he could not have tapped into that omniscience. He was able to say, I set that aside. That's the emptying of Christ. Glory. Did he have glory? Yes. Well, yeah, but that glory was veiled. So he did not, you know, it, it, and that's, that's one of the big arguments. Some people say, well, he, he stopped becoming God. Well, Jesus can't stop becoming God because if he had stopped becoming God, what would happen to the universe he created? Poof. He can't do that. He can't cease becoming what he is, but he could voluntarily limit the exercise of his attributes to that which the Father led him. That's how you explain um, no one knows the time of the coming, not even the Son of Man. It's not that he could not have known that with his omniscience, he could have, but in his incarnation he limited the use of his attributes. He did not give them up but he limited their use. If that makes any... That's about the best way to understand it. He can't cease becoming God. He can't cease being what he is. So, we'll pick up with chapter 2 next week. Got through chapter 1. Yeah. 20 more to go. Father, thanks so much for this time that we've had to study and help us to ponder and think about these things and to, to just 
believe them. And there's there's a lot of stuff here that we look at and shake our heads and just say, "Well, I can't figure that out." And we're not supposed to, because if we could, we'd be like you. So instead, Father, help us to believe and trust and learn all that we can and then leave the mystery to you. And we thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. amen.